Let's pray. Oh, Father, we do ask for your benediction upon the preaching of your word, and we pray that you would grant that we may receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save our souls. For Christ's sake, amen. Well, I invite you to take out your compendium of the inspired words of sacred truth and turn to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1. Our text this morning is verses 21 to 28. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, verses 21 to 28. Then they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and taught. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Now there was a man in the synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, Let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. And when the unclean spirit had convulsed him and cried out with a loud voice, he came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? What new doctrine is this? For with authority he commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And immediately his fame spread throughout all the region around Galilee. Well, have you ever wondered what it would, would have been like to follow around the Lord Jesus for a single day during his life and ministry. You may have seen one of these documentaries, A Day in the Life, where they follow around some extraordinary figure as he lives out his quote-unquote ordinary life. God has given us something better than a video or a documentary of the life of the Lord Jesus. He has given us his inspired word. And the word of God is the adequate, sufficient revelation of God and of Christ. And thankfully, we don't have to guess what it would be like to follow Jesus around for a day in his ministry because we have precisely that recounted for us here in the Gospel of Mark. Verses 21 all the way down to 34 recount a single life in the day of the Lord Jesus as he is beginning another phase of his ministry, a season of his ministry in Galilee. And so as we unpack our text, I have three points that I want to draw out. First of all, note the authority of Christ's doctrine. Second, the authority of Christ's power, and third of all, what should be our response to his authority? Well, in the first place, the authority of his doctrine. Note, in verses 21 to 22, it says, Then they, that is Jesus and his disciples, went into Capernaum, 
And immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and taught, and they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. So let let me just set the background. These events took place in Capernaum. This village was on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. It had a vibrant fishing ministry or industry. It was a center for trade and commerce. It was located among a prominent crossroads of the ancient world. A Roman garrison was stationed there because of its importance and its relatively large population for the small village that it was. The Romans had established a tax polling station in Capernaum, and actually it was from that very tax booth that Jesus called Levi, better known as Matthew, to follow him. It was located on an important trade route in the Mediterranean world, connected directly on a road going up to Damascus. You'll recall Saul would later be on that road and would be converted by the appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ to him. Capernaum belonged to the Tetrarchy of Herod Antipas, who lived from 4 B.C., or rather he reigned from 4 B.C. to 39 A.D. This was the Herod that arrested John and would behead John the Baptist. Herod's brother Philip reigned just neighboring the region of Capernaum, over that region. And Capernaum was sort of located toward the outskirts of the region over which Herod reigned. And so it was an ideal place for Jesus to begin his ministry, which would cause quite the commotion and stir and to escape for a time the auspices of Herod, who would no no doubt be out to... uh, to kill him. And so Jesus, after being baptized by John in the Jordan River, he's anointed with the Spirit of God. He goes out into the wilderness. He's tempted by the devil. And then for many months, he goes down to Judea and he carries out his teaching and miracle ministry in Judea. Then he returns to Capernaum and Galilee and about a year's time transpired. So Mark is jumping over basically the first year of the ministry of Christ and he's launching straight into the second year as Christ sets up his base in Capernaum. Capernaum became kind of his, his, uh, his base for ministry and uh, said that he based himself out of the house of Simon Peter that was located in that village And many miracles and teachings were centered here. This is where he healed uh, Jairus' daughter. This is where he taught the uh, discourse of uh, the bread of life and, and many other teachings and miracles. Well, the text says that immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and taught. There's a large synagogue that stands, the remains of which stand to this day in Capernaum, but it dates to about the fourth century. When I went to Israel, I was able to see that synagogue as well as the house that is said to be the house of Simon Peter. But under the remains of that synagogue, you can still see the original stones of the synagogue that was there, the one that Christ probably taught in, according to our text. 
Synagogues were local meeting places of the Jews. They sprang up during the intertestamental period as a result of the reforms that were introduced by Ezra the scribe after the Babylonian exile of 586 B.C. Synagogues during the week functioned as schools and civil courts. They were really the center of Jewish society outside of the temple, that is. On the Sabbath, the Law and the Prophets would be read in the synagogues and explained by some teacher or prominent man in the society. Jesus had already gained notoriety throughout the region. He had already been traveling and preaching. Hence, when he arrives at the synagogue, they already know he's a rabbi and they invite him to teach. It was customary for visiting rabbis to be given the honor to open up and explicate the scriptures. And it says they were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. His teaching stood in stark contrast to that of the scribes. Scribes were professionally trained scholars who specialized in the law of Moses and generally in the Tanakh as a whole, which we know as the Old Testament. They were the biblical scholars. They were the theologians. They were the guardians and stewards of the sacred scriptures. They had great prestige and respect among the people. They would receive greetings in the marketplaces. They would sit in the most prominent places in the synagogues. They received much favor because of their prestige. The Sanhedrin, the governing body of Israel, led by 70 elders overseen by the high priest, the Sanhedrin was made up of scribes. They had great respect. And most of the scribes in this day were Pharisees. And when they taught, a great deal of learning went behind it because they would quote from many sources. They would quote from their rabbinical predecessors along with interacting with their contemporaries they would draw from authorities, from scholarly authorities that went before them in order to add weight to their argument and to their words. They were very traditional in the way they taught like that. They would give multiple views and opinions about everything, and then they would adjudicate between these multiple views and opinions and give their own opinion about the best interpretation of the text. But then Jesus comes, and Jesus doesn't quote anybody, and he doesn't interact with any other views other than to cite them and to refute them. You have heard that it was said, but I say to you. He doesn't give five views of this or that, but he speaks with definitive authority and with boldness, with clarity, with unction and power, and with absolute conviction. They'd never heard anything like it. And yet in speaking in such a way and not interacting with the great body of scholarship that was around him and that, and that went before him, his teaching was not characterized by simplicity in the simplistic sense or in ignorance in the sense of lacking profundity. He spoke with utter simplicity, utter perspicuity, utter clarity, and yet utter profundity. The reason for Jesus' extraordinary doctrine 
was first of all because he was history's most extraordinary prophet. The Jews were expecting the Messiah to come and to make himself known by teaching the truth of God with unparalleled authority. Moses had foretold of the prophetic office and teaching role of the Messiah who was to come when he said in Deuteronomy 18.15, The Lord your God will raise up a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren. Him you shall hear. Well, ever since Moses, there was never again another prophet like unto Moses who would commune with God, as it were, face to face and hear the very audible spoken words of God. Other, other prophets would receive their prophecies by the means of the impartation of inspired messages and words and through visions and through dreams, but they didn't have this face to face communion with God like Moses did. And then comes the Lord Jesus Christ, the one that John chapter 1 and verse 1 tells us that the Word was with God and the Word was God. And when he says the Word was with God, uh, he, he utilizes this construction in the Greek, proston theon, which literally means he was face to face with God for eternity. He had full communion with the Father. And so when he becomes incarnate and he begins his ministry, he speaks by the very authority of God. He speaks with words that are revealing his intimacy and his communion and his oneness with the Father. He was the prophet like unto Moses, and yet he exceeded Moses in all that he taught with regard to clarity and power. Isaiah 51.4 relates the apex of the revelation of the latter-day instruction that Messiah would bring with the inauguration of God's kingdom. It says, listen to me, my people. Give ear to me, O my nation, for my law will proceed from me, and I will make my justice rest as a light to the peoples. Well, the law proceeded from God, from Yahweh himself, and the person of Jesus Christ. And the word that Isaiah uses for, for law there is Torah, which means instruction. Instruction central to Messiah's task was to teach doctrine, to give instruction in the truth about God, to clear away the smokescreen of Satan's lies, all these traditions of men, all these counterfeit interpretations, all this nebulous confusion that the scribes and Pharisees had surrounded around the word of God with their traditions. He came to disclose the mind of God with divine supernatural insight. And curiously, Mark, in this passage, doesn't give us any specifics about the content of Christ's teaching in the synagogue. Well, this is because the gist of what Jesus preached everywhere was already summarized in verses 14 to 15. He was teaching about the kingdom of God. He was preaching the gospel and calling for the response of faith. And repentance. That was the substance of his teaching everywhere. And yet Mark has a purpose in relaying what he does. 
and also in omitting what he does because he intends to point us beyond Christ's teaching to his unique identity as the divine Messiah. The words of Christ must elicit from God's people faith in the person of Christ. And so Mark points beyond the content of Christ's teaching to the very thing about the person of Christ that the manner of Christ's teaching reveals. And so he calls attention to Christ's unique authority. Authority. The authority with which Jesus taught is not externally derived or extrinsically bestowed. It didn't come from other scholars. It didn't come from the insights of great men. But his authority was infinite and inherent to his own person. His teaching was, was the verbal revelation of who he is as the Son of God. And no human teaching, no mere human teaching, no matter how right, no matter how clear, no matter how forceful, comes close to the power of the words with which Jesus spoke. His words shed more light than the utterances of Moses. They were more regal and majestic than the declarations of David. His words cut deeper than the prophecies of Jeremiah. His words resounded with greater wisdom than that of Solomon himself. It's true that they all spoke the very words of God. But the word of God came, came to its fullest expression and its greatest revelation in Jesus Christ. And whenever he would teach, people would be struck with awe. They would be flabbergasted. They would be dumbfounded simply over the words that proceeded out of his holy mouth. Not to mention the signs and wonders and miracles and raisings of the dead and so forth. Just over the words of Christ. Verse 22, therefore, says they were astonished at his teaching. Astonished. The Greek word used here is literally the strongest word that existed in Koine Greek to speak with a, of a sense of astonishment. It means, according to one reputable lexicon, to cause to be filled with amazement to the point of being overwhelmed. Barclay says they were thunderstruck, as he paraphrases it. MacArthur puts it in the vernacular. He says, Jesus' teaching blew their minds. They'd never heard anything like it. It was simple, understandable, yet more profound than anything they had ever heard. It informed the mind, yet pierced the heart. It riveted the soul. It inflamed the emotions, the passions, and the affections, whether they were unholy or holy emotions and passions and affections. He spoke with the authority of divine transcendence and this sense of transcendence saturated his doctrine with heavenliness, as a Westminster divines put it. Well, they spoke of the word of God and that one of its main characteristics is the heavenliness of the matter. All that Christ taught had a heavenliness about it. There was an otherworldliness to it. 
The Greek philosopher Aristotle, who lived in the 4th century B.C., he once identified three key aspects of persuasion, that is, the art of rhetoric and public speech. And he said the most excellent speeches utilize three elements. For a speech to be persuasive, he said, it needs to have logos, ethos, and pathos. Logos is the rational content and logical consistency of the thing that is taught. It's the truth content that comes behind it and that it's based on. Ethos is the ethical character that stems from one's moral authority to speak as well as the appeal to ethics, to what's right and wrong in order to strike the conscience, the testimony within man about what's right and wrong. And he said, pathos stems from a heart deeply convinced of the matter and that evokes a passionate reaction from others. It's a speaking from the heart to the heart, in other words. Cicero, the great Greek rhetorician, once said of his adversary, I don't believe what you're saying because you don't even believe it, because you say it so apathetically and coldly. Well, that wasn't the case with Christ. If anyone ever gave a perfect speech, it was in the sermons of Jesus Christ. And consider, Christ's logos doesn't come from outside him. He is the logos itself, himself. He is the truth. And so he speaks the truth in purest expression. His ethos stems from his own holiness and sinlessness. And his doctrine portrayed the moral perfections of God with unprecedented clarity and force. His pathos, his passion, flowed from his infinite divine perfections, his heart of perfect love toward others, his purest hatred for evil, and his tender compassion and deep sympathy for sinners. And so powerful truth, impeccable purity, and passionate affection set his synagogue sermon on fire. And wherever he went, his teaching kindled fire in the hearts of men. Hence, no wonder the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, after they realized that it was Jesus they were speaking with, and he disappeared from among them, they blurted out, did not our heart burn within us when he taught to us the scriptures? Burning hearts. That's what would happen under the teaching of Christ. Napoleon, the French revolutionary, the great general, even the despotic Napoleon was astonished at Christ's words. Although his entire life was consumed with ambition and conquest, Yet he confessed that he saw himself as minuscule before the majesty of Christ's teaching. And there's this extended speech that's recorded of Napoleon that he gave at a conversation with General Bertrand. It's very worth reading in totality. But let me just quote a part of it to you. Napoleon said to his general, quote, The gospel possesses a secret virtue a mysterious efficacy, a warmth which penetrates and soothes the heart. 
one finds in meditating upon it that which one experiences in contemplating the heavens. Just a note there, you know, Christian apologists to this day, they still utilize this argument in favor of the existence of God, which is the argument from transcendence. When we hear a beautiful musical composition by a Mozart or a Bach, when we view the Grand Canyon, when we stare up into the starry night sky, we, we get overwhelmed with this sense of awe, this sense of transcendence, that there's this eternity that God has placed in our hearts and the sense of transcendence rings with the truth that God has implanted within us as his image bearers that testifies that there is a greater reality beyond us. There is a source of this transcendence that is beyond us. Curious that Napoleon says in reading the words of the gospel, I get the same sense of transcendence as when I'm gazing out deeply into the night sky. He goes on to say, quote, the gospel is not a book. It's a living being with an action, a power, which invades everything that it opposes its extension. He said, nowhere is to be found such a series of beautiful ideas, admirable moral maxims, which pass before us like the battalions of a celestial army and which produce in our soul the same emotions which one experiences in contemplating the infinite expanse of the skies, resplendent in a summer's night with all the brilliance of the stars. Not only is our mind absorbed, he says, it is controlled, and the soul can never go astray with this book for its guide. Napoleon said that after all his conquests, after all his achievements, he was powerless still over the esteem or criticism that people had of him. He said, that's left up to the judges and the critics, and no doubt they're going to write many bad things about me in history. Yet Christ, he said, has millions of friends who will never speak an evil word of him. Millions of friends who dearly love him, so much so that they would be willing to die for him out of pure affection and love. He confessed that the power of Christ's doctrine exceeded the power of the great Napoleon. That's what he said. And he said, quote, What an, what an abyss between my deep misery and the eternal reign of Christ, which is proclaimed, loved, adored, and which is extending over all the earth, end quote. Unlike Napoleon, Christ didn't conquer through the power of the sword, but by the power of love, by the power of truth, by the power of the authority of the doctrine that he taught. Millions and millions of Christians all over the world are a living testimony to the sublimity of Christ's words. In many cases, and the conversion of many, it was a single saying of Christ or a single teaching of Christ that was instrumental in bringing the most radical kind of upheaval to the lives of the most profane people, transforming their way of life permanently. Christ's words have so penetrated the conscious of millions of people that upon hearing his words, this phrase, this saying, this truth, it stays in the mind. It strikes the conscience. They cannot shake the words. They can't stop thinking about him. 
His words percolate continually in the soul and they drip and drip, soaking the soul with the very dew of heaven, transforming their entire being and outlook on life, replacing hard hearts with sensitive, God-fearing consciences, such as the power of Christ's doctrine. The stories told of a learned and brilliant Jewish man who had never read the New Testament. He decided to read the Gospels in order to complement his learning. But as he read, he was amazed at how Christ would respond to his adversaries. They were always trying to trap him with these impossible questions and dilemmas. What's the greatest commandment? Should we stone this adulterous woman or not? And the man would read these accounts, and before he got to Jesus' answers, he would close his Bible, and he would ponder the question, and he would ask himself, how would I answer this question? And then he would open his Bible and read on to see Jesus' answer. And every single time, his answer was different from the Lord's, but he recognized that the Lord's answer was much better. And finally, in reading Matthew 22, where the Pharisees plotted to entangle Jesus in his words. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And so the Jewish man closed his Bible and he thought about it, and he thought about the dilemma. Well, if Jesus answered yes, the Jews would condemn him as an enemy of their people. But if Jesus answered no, then the Romans would condemn him as an enemy of the state. And so he thought about the dilemma. And then he opened his Bible and he read Christ's response based on the inscription on Caesar's coins. Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And the man, to use Barclay's words, was thunderstruck with the authority and wisdom of the man from Nazareth. And he confessed truly this man is the son of God and he became a believer. Brethren, have we been so gripped by the power and authority of Christ's teaching? Or have we lost our sense of astonishment? You know, the old saying goes that familiarity breeds contempt. We hear his words so often. We read his words so often in the Bible. We, we hear them preached in the church and we're so accustomed to hearing them has it become the case that we are no longer amazed and astonished by them have his words lost their power to renew our minds to sanctify our souls have they lost their weight in the way we assess things how they factor into our decision-making processes how they govern our lives god forbid The more familiar we become with the teachings of Christ, the more we will be riveted by them. That is, if we're truly discerning their divine nature, their worth, their beauty, their their authority, and the transcendent glories conveyed, conveyed by them. So, dear brethren, if we would ever cease to be amazed by the divine weightiness of Christ's words, And we should recognize that the problem isn't with his words. The problem is with our own hearts. Well, note in the second place the authority of his power. 
We see this in verses 23 to 27 and this encounter with the demon. But to understand the authorial intention of Mark, let me just frame these verses within its theological context. The sin and fall of man has thrust our whole race under a deluge of fearful consequences. One of these consequences, consequences is physical. From dust you are, and to dust you shall return. But another aspect of these consequences is spiritual. Not only does sin incur guilt, provoking God's judgment, not only does sin result in pollution, corrupting our heart and nature, but sin entangles us in bondage, in spiritual bondage, necessitating the exertion of a power that is beyond our nature in order to deliver us from it. And this fearful reality of spiritual bondage is seen clearly in cases of demonic possession. Demons are a part of the kingdom of darkness. They do the bidding of the devil. They are subordinates to him, and they are ruled over by him. And so if Jesus is to save his people from their sins, as Matthew 1.21 says, then corollary to that is that he must be able to save them from the spiritual entities that hold them in bondage. And not only can Jesus do this, but he's the only one who can. For he's the only man to have ever lived who had inherent power to command demons and elicit instant submission from them contrary to their will. The Gospel of Mark in our text is showing that Jesus has the authority and the ability and the power to deliver sinners from their slavery to Satan and to the powers of evil. 1 John 3.8 says, For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Acts 10.38 says, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Christ's authority over the demons to expel them with a simple command is unique. There were exorcists in this day among the Jews, but they typically used incantations, extended prayers. They would seek to elicit the name of the demon, and they thought that they could get the demon's name and then speak the demon's name as they commanded it out and prayed over it, that that would give them the advantage in order to be able to supplant it. But they would go through these long extended rituals, much like the Roman Catholic Church today and its process of exorcisms, curiously. But nobody commanded demons to come out with a word. There's no instance of this in the Old Testament either. Certainly there were many demons there at work. You'll recall that uh, when the distressing spirit came upon Saul after his apostasy, it was arranged that David would play the harp in order to calm him. 1 Samuel 16 
There's evidently something spiritual going on there because David's playing of the harp is associated with his role as the sweet psalmist of Israel who would sing the words of God. But David was powerless to exercise commanding authority over the demon. Not so with Jesus. He doesn't have to make extended prayers. He doesn't have to play harps. He doesn't have to sing songs. He doesn't have to engage in extended rituals. He doesn't press a crucifix to people's foreheads like Bob Larson. He doesn't do any of that. He simply speaks and the demons tremble and they agonize and they submit and they flee. Demons were behind the false gods and the false religions of the nations. They were also the spiritual impulse behind Israel's apostasy in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 32, 17, quoted by the Apostle Paul in his first epistle to the Corinthians, said, They sacrifice to demons and not to God. By that, God meant the gods of the nations, but specifically he's speaking of Israel and its state of apostasy. They sacrifice to demons. Not just to idols and statues, but to spiritual entities that were the impetus behind this stuff. But for the most part, the demons were covert. It wasn't until Jesus came, manifesting the presence and the power and the holiness of God, that their cover was blown. That's why we see all kinds of demonic activity manifesting around Jesus in the Gospels. Wherever he goes, Satan marshaled his armies and concentrated them around the Lord Jesus in the days of his ministry. They knew that he had come to seal their doom. They knew that he had come to overthrow their power. And so they unleashed all that they had against him, seeking to subvert him. But here comes Christ and He's uprooting their dominion as he ushers in the realization of God's redemptive reign. The kingdom of God has come. The kingdom of darkness is thrust down. Christ is able to do this, the text says, because of his authority. Twice our passage calls attention to his authority. Exousia in the Greek. Verses 22 and 27. Christ's authority is the distinguishing characteristic of both his doctrine and his dominion over the demons. This word indicates a state of control over something, a sphere in which power is exercised, a potential to command, control, or govern. Exousia is often to, uh, used to describe power exercised by rulers or others in high position by virtue of their office. Well, he had all authority because he is the Lord and the creator of the world. One scholar observes that, quote, in Mark, exousia occurs nine times, six with reference to Jesus and three with reference to authority confirmed conferred by Jesus on the apostles. He says, every instance of exousia, therefore, reflects either directly or indirectly 
the authority of Jesus. It all comes from Jesus. He says, Mark's use of this defining term at the outset of Jesus' public ministry establishes his authority over the highest authorities in both the temporal realm, as represented by the scribes, and the supernatural authorities, as represented by the demon. All authority in the temporal earthly realm and in the spiritual realm belongs to Christ. Now, with this unprecedented authority, Christ is teaching in the synagogue. And verse 23 tells us that there is a man in the synagogue with an unclean spirit. It was unclean. Unclean. That word means impure, morally tainted. It's describing a spiritual entity that is contaminated to the core, characterized by utter impurity, utter uh, sinfulness. Unclean is language derived from the Levitical economy. The sense is that the spirit, this unclean spirit, in its being and nature and moral state is opposite to the holiness of God. Demons are fallen, utterly cursed Creatures, there's no good in them. There's no virtue in them. They are hell-bent on rebellion against God, and they're set on doing all they can to undermine his influence and resist his will. So it says this man was with an unclean spirit, but in the original, he was literally in an unclean spirit. In other words, he was taken up into the sphere and dominion of this spirit, and he was enslaved to this spirit's power over him. Hence, the spirit not only binds him in sin and blinds him in deception, but the spirit with its dominion exercises that dominion to take control of the man's body and to speak through his human faculties. So the spirit's habitation within the man manifests as possession of the man. This was a man under the bondage of the devil. He was bound by the evil one. No one but Christ could set him free. It's impossible for true believers to be indwelt by demons. Utterly impossible. Many Pentecostals today teach that they can and they pretend to cast out demons from professing Christians. I don't deny that everybody who says they're a Christian isn't necessarily a Christian, and that people who profess to be Christians can have demons. But it's impossible for a genuine believer who is born of the Spirit of God to be indwelt by demons. Colossians 1.13 says, Christ has delivered us. Well, God has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love. In conversion, we are removed from underneath the dominion of Satan, and we are placed under the kingship and lordship and saving, redemptive dominion of the Lord Jesus Christ. He rules our minds, he rules our bodies, and even our temples are said to be temple, our bodies are said to be temples of the Holy Spirit. And so a Christian, of course, can be attacked by demons, tempted by demons, 
but cannot be indwelt or dominated by them. So this man wasn't a true believer. But notice where he was. He was in the synagogue. He wasn't in the pagan temple. He was in the synagogue. Yes, demons go to church. I think it's one of their favorite places to go because they resist God's will. They do everything they can to resist God's will. They operate by preying upon the unregenerate, especially ones who have a form of godliness but deny its power, to borrow from the words of the Apostle Paul. Even religious sinners who claim to believe the scriptures and profess the truth about God. In fact, demons frequent Christian churches because they work constantly to subvert the influence of the word of God by blinding people's minds with lies. There's no such thing as a perfectly pure church, just as there was no such thing as a perfectly pure synagogue. Mark 4.15 describes unconverted hearers of the word when it says when they hear Satan, the devil, he comes immediately and takes away the word that was sown in their hearts. So wherever the truth is preached, you can be sure that demonic entities are aware of it and they are working to undermine its influence. The primary way they do this is through deception, lies, false narratives, slanders against reality and truth, slanders against God's character, slanders in people's minds against the character of other believers, Religious dogmas contrary to sound doctrine, they operate through deception. 1 Timothy 4.1 says, now the Spirit says expressly, this is the Holy Spirit saying this, that in the latter time some will depart from the faith giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. And so their deception and their false doctrine is a characteristic distinctive of the last days. They attack and distort the gospel. They twist the truth about who Christ is. They deny his deity if they can. They deny his dominion, his authority, his power. They deny his sufficiency to save sinners as the perfect savior from the dominion of evil. They are the influence behind every false religion and every cult and every heresy that does violence to the essentials of Christian theology. If there's one thing they hate above all, it's the truth of God's word. Demonic influence is the impetus, yes, behind all false religion, and false religion is everything other than the true revelation of God taught in the Holy Scriptures. So it's everything other than biblical Christianity. And so... What was it that made the demon cry out? Because it said he cried out. Anakradzo, in the Greek, strong word. He gave a loud cry, a shout. This describes a disturbingly loud exclamation. He was stricken with terror and dread. He cried out at a kind of agony, as we see in the cases of other demons. What was it that made him cry out? It was the presence of the Holy One 
in the midst, teaching his word with authority. It was Jesus there in the synagogue disseminating his teaching. Jesus' teaching, that's what made him cry out. The word of God is powerful to crush the influence of the devil. To use Paul's language, it's a mighty weapon that tears down demonic strongholds. Demons form strongholds of false beliefs in people's minds. The truth of God's word barrages these strongholds like a battering ram. It busts down their doors. It exposes their lies. It brings evil entities out of their refuges within the minds and bodies of unbelievers. It drives the demons away. It expels them. It destroys their influence. If you want to be free from the control and influence of demons, then you know what you need to do. You need to do what Paul said in Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. Not just dwelling in you, but dwelling in you with all wisdom. That is, with right application, with right interpretation and thorough application that results by God's grace in both a sound mind and a sound life. It's the word of Christ that blasts away the powers of darkness, just as light expels darkness itself. Well, verse 24 says, A demon cried out, saying, Let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. The demon knew who he was because he created them although they later rebelled. And saying this, the unclean spirit obviously was speaking the truth. But he was doing it with a malicious purpose that was intended to propagate a lie. Demons are highly intelligent. They've been around for thousands of years. They've observed human history. They've acquired the insights of human learning, not to mention their own supernatural intelligences and sources of information, and so they know how to speak a mixture of truth and lies in order to turn people away from Christ. Later on in Mark 3.22, the Pharisees would accuse Jesus of casting out demons by the power of Beelzebub, the prince of the demons. And so they accuse Jesus of being in league with the demons. And so if everywhere Jesus goes, the demons are proclaiming that he is the Messiah, that he is the Son of God, it would only serve to reinforce the Pharisaic lie that they were working for him. And so you see how crafty they are. They're masters of deception. They not only use lies to promote deception, but they can craftily, craftily speak truths and distort truths and frame them in such a way so as to spin and promote and reinforce false narratives. But Jesus, Jesus isn't privy to receiving praises from demons. He doesn't need their testimony to confirm who he is. He's capable of proving that himself. So verses 25 to 26 say, 
But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. And when the unclean spirit had convulsed him and cried out with a loud voice, he came out of him. No dialogue, no extended battle, no repetition of some formula, not even a prayer to the Father. Simply be quiet and come out. His simple word crushed the demon's stronghold. It, it came out with a loud cry, convulsive rage. Christ demonstrated the authority of his word and his, magister, his magisterial teaching and also by supplanting the power of this demon. His word comes like flashes of lightning that enlighten our darkness. His word comes like peals of thunder that shake the very foundations of hell. You can love his teaching or you can hate his teaching. But one thing you can't do with the teaching of the man from Nazareth is ignore it. And if you go all your life trying to ignore it, trying to ignore and cast off the weight of his words, they will catch up to you at the end. You'll feel their weight at last. For these words are so weighty and they have so much authority that they are capable of sinking anyone who rejects them down to the depths of the pit. But they also have authority to grant eternal life to all who receive them. Hence Jesus said in John 12, 47 to 48, If anyone hears my words and does not believe, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. You see, Christ's words bear ultimate authority, and they will do so for eternity. They bear so much authority that they will hold us forever accountable to how we responded to them which is our final point, our response to Christ's authority. Well, there's three responses stated or implied by our text. The first is an inadequate response. Inadequate. Necessary as far as it goes, but inadequate. This is the response of the people who heard him. Verse 22 says they were astonished. Verse 27 says they were amazed. So much so that verse 28 tells us that immediately his fame spread throughout all the region around Galilee. You see, everybody was talking about him, but few repented and believed in him. Hence, Jesus says in Matthew 11, after fulfilling his ministry in Capernaum, he said, you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say to you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. They had received greater light. They had received tremendous privilege, but they incurred greater judgment because they refused to bow down to the word of Christ with the appropriate response. You see, it's not enough to hear about Jesus. It's not enough to admire him as a great teacher or a wonder worker. You have to repent and believe in him. And the second response is seen in the demon. 
and initially in the religious man who had the demon. The demon said, what do we have to do with you? It was terrified of Christ's judgment. As a hell-bound creature, it was set in its course of rebellion. It only wanted Jesus to get away. Many people are like this. They know the truth about Jesus. They fear his judgment. But their response is to flee from him rather than fleeing to him. They try to avoid him. They try to cast out the influence of his words from their conscience. They do all they can to escape the demands of his teaching. The preaching of the gospel puts them in moral anguish and they hate it. And so like this demon, they hate the light and flee from it. Many people sadly have faith that only goes so far as the faith of demons. This demon confessed the truth about Christ. You are the Holy One of God. James 2.19 says, You believe that there is one God. You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. Many, sadly, don't even have enough faith to tremble, yet alone to repent. The man in the synagogue was a Jew, apparently a regular attender of the synagogue. He was like a churchgoer. You see, it's not enough just to go to church, to admire Christ's teaching, even to be astonished at the wisdom of Christ's teaching. You have to experience his power to set you free from the dominion of evil. You have to experience supernatural birth. You have to come into the reality of the kingdom. You have to come under the authority of Christ's yoke. He's the king. There's a difference between head faith and heart faith, only heart faith saves. Well, the third response, not clearly explained in our text, but implied by it and by the rest of the Gospel of Mark, is that of the disciples. The Gospel of Mark later recounts their response, and it epitomizes in chapter 8, verse 29, when Peter, speaking for the company of the twelve, confesses, You are the Christ. This was the confession of faith. Peter believed in his heart and confessed with his mouth the Lord Jesus. The disciples believed Christ's teaching. They embraced it. They clung to it. They lived it out. They staked their whole hope for life and eternity on Christ's authoritative teaching. And so we must move beyond amazement, beyond admiration, beyond appreciation, beyond the words of Christ themselves to place our faith in the person whom those words reveal. The disciples made a lifestyle of de deferring to the authority of Christ's word. And our world today, friends and brethren, is a mess of confusing voices. Like the voices of the scribes who had every interpretation under the sun. They could spin a whirlwind of information around the common person and thrust them into a dilemma of hopeless confusion. That's like our world today. Well, we can trust in the authority and the clarity of Christ's word. Religious know-it-alls, news media, scientific experts, worldly philosophies, even popes and consuls have often contradicted themselves as Luther said. But we have one bedrock of truth and certainty, the infallible word of the living Christ. 
And because Christ's words are divine, they not only have divine authority, but embedded in them is a seminal sufficiency. They are sufficient for life and faith. His doctrine isn't just moral maxims or pleasant platitudes. It's the very revelation of the power of God unto salvation. His teaching provides us with the foundations upon which we can construct an entire world and life view, an all-embracive perspective and outlook on life that brings every aspect of life under the authority of Christ for the glory of God. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for these divine words, these true words, these authoritative words, these powerful words that set us free from the bondage of the enemy. Help us to know and to fully, more fully appreciate our liberty in Christ, the liberty that you give us by setting our hearts free so we can sing to your glory free from the burdens of conscience, free from the weight of sin, freed from the dominion of evil, set free with hearts that fly to you. O oh God, fill us with all joy and peace in believing by the power of the Holy Spirit, we pray in Christ's name, amen.